Hey, welcome everyone. Uh, thank you for coming. We'll start on top of the hour. I'm, I shared the folder. Uh, there are all the links for all the resources we will use today. Um, there's a PowerPoint presentation and a few movies that the guest speaker will use for the presentation. Feel free to check them out. I'll share in the chat also the, the publication. So uh, we'll start in a little bit. Thank you.
Hello. Hi, how are you? I, I uploaded uh, also the paper into the folder and everything, so it should work. You, you can try it out if you would like. Okay. Uh, let's see. Yeah, I see the paper. Cool. So I, I removed all the movies from the um, presentation and I just put files instead. Okay. Yeah, I thought. Yeah, thank you for doing that. Yeah, thank you. We'll I'm start in, in like the... around eight minutes, so we still have a little bit of time. I'm I'm muting because I'm inviting people in, like I'm pinning them in okay. and, and so on. So uh, and then I'll share on Twitter really quick also that we are about to start. So mm -hmm. okay.
everyone uh, we will start in around two to three minutes so um, if you think this discussion will be interesting feel free to share the room uh, with people and um, yeah all the resources that we will need today for the talk are in this Google Drive folder that I posted above and in the chat I shared the lab website and um, yeah thanks for coming and we'll start soon. I know people will still be coming in uh, when we start, but um, yeah. And welcome, Diary. Uh, thank you so much for making the account coming here. And you know, thanks for having me. <laughs> can you hear me well? Yes, I can hear you well. Thank you. Okay. And we still have like one or two minutes, so um, yeah. Anyways, but we'll start soon and I hope you had a good day. <laughs> I know we had a lot of trouble with the movies, but Yeah, I think I removed the movies from the from the slides. And so people should be able to just click on the movie if needed. <laughs> yeah, and um so usually like because we keep the recordings we keep also the files up like um we i have enough uh, data space to keep them up so if people listen in a maybe you know in a few days the recording uh it will still if you want at some point me to take it down just just let me know and i'll take it down yeah okay um yeah, we are about to start everyone. So thanks for coming. And um, yeah, as I said, people will still be coming in, but I shared also in the chat, like we had to find everything and so on. So when we start, uh, people know.
by then. Okay, I think, hi Dr. Shah, welcome, thanks for coming, meet uh, Thierry, um, Thierry, meet Dr. Shah. Hello. Hi Katerina and our guest Thierry, hopefully everyone had a great day so far. I'm glad to hear. Okay, we are starting right on time, perfect. So welcome everyone to Science Society and of course a special welcome to you Terry. we really appreciate you coming here and before we start let me um, introduce you a little bit to the audience so they get to know you a little bit. Um, so Dr. Thierry Imoni is a professor of molecular and um, cellular and developmental biologist and um, physics at Yale University. And um, he, um, he does really um, interesting research in um, combining mathematical modeling and quantitative experiments uh, to understand biological computations um, that um, allows organisms to sense and na navigate their uh, chemical environments. And he uses model systems in his lab, um, um, bacterial chemotaxis and fly olfaction. And um, they can then compare the different models, which is a really interesting approach. Um, so um, before coming to Yale, uh, Thierry studied physics at the ETH uh, Zürich. Uh, where he received his PhD uh, cum laude in theoretical astrophysics from the University of La Laguna. And before um, uh, doing his uh, postdocs at the National Center for Atmospheric Research, Boulder, uh, and the University of Chicago, where he discovered key mechanisms that enabled magnetic field to floats to the surface of the sun to create sunspots, which is really interesting too. <laughs> Maybe we should talk about that another day too. Uh, supported by major um, funding of NIH, NSF, and the Paul G. Allen Family Foundation, and um, many more. And he is also very interested in art and actually his wife is a, is a re-owned uh, sculpture, which is really interesting. I checked out the work, uh, it's really interesting. So um, welcome, and we usually start. Hello. Um, so how did you discover your passion for science? Was it? something you always wanted to do? Did it come later? Did you first want to become an artist? Maybe? I don't know. Um, we really always love to hear like the story of people, how they became to be, you know, the person in the career they are right now. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much for, for having me. Um, I was having trouble some 
point, I the the connection was dropping, so I don't know if it was me or or you, but uh, I I really I I heard everything more or less what you said, so so it's okay. Um, the so where where did I get uh, how did I get in science? Um, so I grew up in in the mountains of Switzerland as a kid and basically my passion was uh, just rock climbing and i also liked mathematics and i didn't really think much uh so much about science i was just really enjoying uh you know rock climbing climbing those mountains but um i discovered like a, a really a great taste for like studying physics and understanding nature and so on and so I went to the ETH and then uh, to the Canary Island to study astrophysics. And um, when I then um, moved to the US to do a postdoc, first at Boulder and then in the US of Chicago, um, at that point, I met this person who had just been hired as an assistant professor in the, at the University of Chicago. His name is Philip Cluzel. And he told me, you know, in my lab, what we study is where does individuality comes from? Why are we different? And I studied the individuality of bacteria. And so he was basically tracking the behavior of individual bacteria as they're navigating chemicals and studying the fluctuation in the behavior of those bacteria. So I thought that that was really fascinating. And uh, this is how I went on to 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 switch to biology and with respect to art i always uh had like this thing inside of me so at some point i really considered seriously to become a sculptor but i ended up marrying one which is pretty nice too can you hear me by the way since i did i don't get feedback so oh, i don't know yes. if Yes, it's, yeah, I can hear yeah. you well. I'm sorry, okay. I have a red bar in between. I think it's because I went to another room further away from. Oh, me. I see. Okay. Oh, yeah. So uh, the first thing I wanted to tell everyone is that please interrupt me right away with any questions, so we can have more of a conversation than me just talking to a screen here, because I don't see you, so I don't know if you're still there or not, and so on, and. Um, Maybe I can just uh, start telling you uh, about chemical sensing and uh, how did we get to study uh, how flies navigate odors. Yeah, uh, thank you. So I'm bringing up my slides on the phone and uh, I was not able to embed movies. So whenever I, mention a movie in the slide you're going to see movie one or movie two that means you can go to the to the google drive and and click on that particular file and to to visualize it so the work i'm going to talk to you about uh was spearheaded by an amazing postdoc nirak kadakia and uh he was also uh, collaborating with another postdoc mahmoud demir and uh, this is a collaboration with uh, my colleague, Damon Clark, who happens to be an expert in motion detection in the visual system. And you're gonna see how that comes into play. So 
navigating chemical is really something that's essential for life. You cells follow chemicals, bacteria follow chemicals, insects follow chemicals, animals, etc. And uh, as far as animals, olfaction is really the primary sense that they use for survival, to find food, find place to lay eggs, to find sexual partner, etc. But also to navigate, to find you, to pinch you if there are mosquitoes, spread disease, etc. No? But it's also one of the senses that's uh, in some sense less understood uh, for two reasons. First, it's very difficult to visualize odor in space and time. They're not, you know, visible molecule. And the second thing is um, odors are made out of many compounds, odorant, individual molecules, and it's the combination of those that give you a um the sense of a certain type of odor and how is the odor identity is represented in the brain is something that is still uh kind of mysterious but so today what i was gonna talk about is not so much about how insects and animals recognize which odor they are encountering but how do they follow those odors to their sources for example, if it's a pheromone released by a female or if it's some odor that's released by food that they'd like to, to, to get to. And so if you go to the third slide, basically the, the main question I'm interested in is what strategies do organisms use to navigate chemicals? Strategies in, in terms of what do they need to measure and how do they need to use that information in order to get to the to the source of odors and um, so as a first example if you move to the fourth slide uh, there's a slide about what bacteria do so bacteria these these bacteria there's a movie no, I don't have the movie in the in the drive. But basically on the left, what you're seeing is um, E. coli bacteria that are swimming. Um, and that's a movie that was taken by Howard Berg from Harvard. And uh, you see that there's the body of the cell in the front and then there's this kind of wavy thing in the back. These are the flagella of the of the bacteria. And the bacteria spin those flagella. And when they spin them in the counterclockwise direction, the flagella form a helical bundle, as you can see in that picture, that pushes the cell straight. And whenever they spin the motor in the, the other direction, that helical bundle becomes unstable. And so that causes the flagella to kind of fly apart and, and cause a, a, a sudden change in orientation of the bacterium and this is called a tumble so on the right of the slide you see this this diagram showing that the bacterium is actually doing a random walk and it's doing a random walk because it's it's so small it's about one micron to two micron long and over this distance small molecules diffuses extremely fast in like you know 10 15, 20 milliseconds molecules will diffuse from the front to the back. And so if the bacteria don't move, 
they are not able to tell in which direction the concentration is increasing. So what they do is that they need to move in a given direction to see if life is getting better, which means if the attractant concentration is going up or down. And if it's going up, then they reduce the probability to change direction. So they have a sensory system that controls this probability to change direction, and they reduces that. But all of these work well if they are in a gradient that is stable. And so in this picture, the gradient that's stable is represented by that smooth blue color that's going from you know white on the left to darker blue on the right. And uh, if you go to the next slide, bacteria are not the only one who, who climb gradients. The larvae of the fruit flies do this. This is a, a figure from a, a paper from Mathieu Louis' lab, uh, where they examine how fruit flies navigate towards the source of odor. And the same thing, you can see that the odor concentration is this smooth landscape. And so the larvae can tell if it's going up or down that landscape, and it can also uh, sweep its head when it's stopped to, to tell, oh, the concentration is higher on the left or on the right, so I should go on the left. Is that clear? Is there any question up to here? Uh, for me, it's clear, and I don't see any comments or questions in the, in the chat. Okay. Uh, thank you. So then the question is, now imagine the same situation, but you add wind. So now there's a source of odor, and you, but you have wind. And so the wind is going to carry those odor molecules uh, downwind. And if the wind is a bit turbulent, the signal is going to be very um, complicated. And so if you want to go to the next slide, you'll see this picture with uh, trajectories that have different colors and there's a dark kind of image of a plume in the back and it says movie one so if you click on the first movie you can visualize it and we can talk about it a little bit and so i'm gonna turn it on my computer so tell me if you can if you are able to actually visualize that movie I'm good. Is everyone else um, okay? Or if not, uh, please share in the chat or raise your hand. Thank you. So, if you're able to visualize it, you'll see that basically you have a few flies that we're tracking. And what's happening here is that those flies are forced to walk between two pieces of glass so they and the glass are about once you know one centimeter apart from each other and so they can walk on the surface of the the glass at the bottom but from the left side we're flowing in air and in the middle we're releasing a plume of smoke and it turns out that the fruit flies love smoke and so they track the smoke towards its source. And so you can see their behavior. And this is, this was a very nice uh, discovery that one of my postdocs, Mahmoud Demir made, that basically using this assay, he could 
see the full behavior of the fly as a function of time and the and the encounter the the statistics of the encounter of the fly with odor packets that are discrete and you see that unlike the case of the bacteria i was talking to you about or the larvae there's no smooth concentration of the odor what you see here is like discrete packets that have been that are dragged down by the wind and what's happening is basically the wind is in this case, it's not turbulent, but we basically perturb the wind with lateral jet to make it as to approximate turbulence. And this basically rips this straight plume that you see at the beginning into different pieces. And so an animal in the middle of that area only experience intermittent whiffs that are odorized and then a blank a duration of time when there's no odor, and then again some odor, and then no odor, and so on. No? And so the question is, how do you navigate when there's no continuous signal like that, but you're just basically experiencing these very intermittent packets of smell? Any question? I think... Um... We're good on the questions right now. Thank you. But um, yeah, it's an interesting question. You ask. <laughs> so I want to make you guys work, but I don't get very... Uh, so far, I haven't managed to do it. But so the next question then is, what should be the strategy that in insects use to navigate such complicated signal? And this, has, this is a question that has been around for more than 100 years. So a lot of scientists have been pondering about this. And uh, there's a beautiful experiment. So if you go to slide number nine, uh, the one that on the title says Kennedy and coworkers. So what Kennedy and coworkers did is that they realized that one of the main problem was it's very hard to know where the odor is. And so if you want to understand how the animal navigate the odor plume, Somehow you have to know where the odor is relative to the animal. And so they did this cool experiment. They released pheromones together with soap bubbles. And then they released a moth down, downwind from that location that they knew was attracted to this pheromone. And they basically recorded the trajectory of that pheromone and because they had the soap bubble, they knew when the animal was inside the, the, the odor plume or outside of it, okay? And so the diagram that you see here is a trajectory of a moth. And the line is thicker when the moth is inside the odor plume and thinner when the moth is outside the odor plume. And what you realize, what you see here is that whenever it's thick, the moth seems to be going upwind and whenever it's thin when it loses the odor plume basically the moth start to go crosswind and so that suggests that a very basic strategy to navigate this intermittent signal is to go upwind when there is odor but go crosswind or casting crosswind to try to find the plume again until they intersect with the plume again and so then they go upwind again 
And so this, uh, in this strategy, if you go now to the next slide, wind provides the directional information and the encounters with the odorized air packet provide timing information, tells the animal, oh, you lost the plume, you better go and start to cast, or basically tells the animal when to cast or when to go up with. But the directionality, the direction information is provided by the wind, okay? And since the 30s until you know the year 2022 this has been the case basically that the main directional information uh, that is available to animal to navigate is the wind and um, so the question we ask which is the next slide is is the wind really the only local directional cue available to navigate turbulent plumes is there a possibility that those animals might also detect something, another directional cue that might help navigate? And so one of the, the inspiration um, to ask this question came from basically my path in, in astrophysics. So if you go to the next slide, you see this beautiful picture uh, which is actually on the cover of this amazing book. I really recommend to all of you, if you can get your hands on a copy, you should get it. It's called An Album of Fluid Motion. And it's basically a compilation that Milton Van Dyke did of fluid mechanics experiments. So they're basically pictures of fluid mechanics experiments. So in this case, for example, you see uh, there's a cylinder on the left and there is a laminar flow flowing from left to right. And on the cylinder, there is some dye that's being released. And you see behind the cylinder that there's this wake of vortex or vorticity or swirling motion of the fluid that is dragging um, that tracer that's being released from the cylinder. No? And so this is not a turbulent uh, regime. So there's this regular, there's a regularity to it. But what you can see also is that when you go from the cylinder down downstream, the these volutes become larger and larger. You see that? So yep. the right, they're much more broad. And so that means that there's some, in addition to going down, stream these tracers are moving outwards from the center line and so if you go to the next slide it's also a picture that's in that book this is in a regime that it's a much higher velocity and so it's in a turbulent regime so now you see again these packets of this tracer are broken up no but again you see that there's this spreading of the signal away from the center line. And this is one of the universal effect that turbulence will have on passive tracer. So turbulence will cause those by breaking up and twisting and so on those, those packets of tracers. They basically cause those packets to perform a random walk and 
this random walk disperse the signal laterally away from the center line much, much faster than this would happen if you had just molecular diffusion. So if this flow was just laminar, you would just see that the plume would be straight and slightly wider on the, on the right than on the left due to molecular diffusion. But the turbulence caused this dispersion that is very fast in the lateral direction, okay? And so this is present almost always when you have an odor that's being released in air. The air has this complex turbulent motion and that will basically disperse the signal in addition to dragging it in the main direction of the wind downstream. And so one thing we wonder was, well, there's this regular motion of those packets, not only downstream, but also sideways, no, away from the center line. So if you could detect that, you would have an extra information. You would, if you could detect the red arrows as an animal, you would know not only where, where it's upstream, but also where the center of this plume is, which would be a very valuable information to have, no? And so if we go to the next slide, uh, I'm showing like a, a, a simple simulation of a, a theoretical model of, of this dispersion. So here we basically approximating this by taking a model where you have a source that's releasing packets at a, at a random rate, at, at a rate constant, but it's randomly. And uh, those packets are dragged downwind, but they're also performing this random walk due to this turbulent motion of the air. No? And in addition, they're also diffusing. And so those, those circles, you see that they're becoming a bit wider as they're going down to the right. That's diff molecular diffusion, but also they're spreading much faster than they're getting wider uh, due to this turbulent diffusion. And so if you calculate the mean wind in this simulation, the mean wind direction is basically straight from left to right. But if you calculate the odor velocity, so basically the, you find that there's a field that is pointing outwards, okay? And by the way, this, this understanding, this dispersion uh, was beautifully described about exactly a hundred years ago by G.I. Taylor. He's a, a fantastic physicist working in fluid mechanics. Okay, so these considerations brings up on the next slide, slide 15, the hypothesis that maybe flies could detect the direction of motion of other packets independently from the ability to detect wind. And this is important and we'll see why. And so directing, detecting the direction of motion would be very useful because there's more regularity in that direction of motion than you would have, for example, if you were to just try to use the direction of the gradient. For example, in this picture here that you're seeing now, the blue arrows are basically the direction in which the gradient of the odor is pointing. And you see that it points in, in kind of random direction. 
but the direction of motion of the odor is outwards from the center line, as I was telling you before. Okay, so how are we going to study how flies can detect the direction of motion of other packets? And uh, so if you go to slide 16, um, the approach that we took was to use optogenetics. And so this technology, what, what, it, what it amounts to is we can genetically modify the flies such that in their antenna, which they use to sense odor, in the neuron that detect the odor that called olfactory receptor neuron, we can express a protein that, that is sensitive to light and that when it's activated, opens a channel that brings current inside the neuron and activate those neurons. So you can activate the neuron with a virtual odor, which is light instead of real odors. And that's awesome because then light you can control with a projector. And so here on the right-hand side, you see a picture of our rig where, so you have that big arena where the flies are walking and on top of it, we're projecting a movie of those um, odor plume that I was talking about before. And we're gonna do this experiment in flies that are blind so they cannot see the, the, the that red light. Okay, and you can run control to show that basically the behavior of the flies respond to slide is very, very similar to that, to real odors and so on and so on. Okay, any question so far? Are you still with me? <laughs> I'm good, but um, let me check again. Now, so far, okay. I think everyone is good, but it's a very elegant solution. Thank you. So the great advantage of doing that is that we can dissociate the motion of the odor from the motion of the air, okay? And so, and this is important. And so we can conduct experiment where there's no air motion, there's no flow. There's just odor motion without air motion. And so in, in the, in the and that's the first actual result that uh, is in the paper. And then I'm going to show you now. So if you go to slide uh, number 18, so the first question we ask is, okay, let's, so if the flies respond to the motion of the odor, uh, we should be able to project red bars on this arena and have those bar moving from left to right or right to left. And it would be natural for the flies to turn against the motion since they would be interesting to go towards the source of the odor, no? And so when the bars are moving from left to right, the fly should turn towards the left. And when the bars are moving from right to left, they should turn towards the right. And on the right-hand side of that slide, you can see, you can see that this is what's happening, okay? Now, to get into a bit more details, what we did is we wonder, well, maybe they're also just sensing the the gradient, no? So they have two antenna 
and maybe when they hit the edge of one of those bar, one of the antenna is in the odor, the virtual odor, and the other one is not. So they know oh, I should go to the left. So how do we know if they follow the gradient or the motion? And that's the next slide, the slide number 19. So the next experiment we did is that we took bars that were wider and we slide those bar again on the arena. Now we project the, them as moving. So now when the on so so when the fly first expands the bar, it's going from no odor to a large odor, no? And then when the other edge of that bar passes over the fly, it's the contrary. The odor is going from high to low. So if the fly, like you can see the the on the on the left of the slide, no? So if the fly is uh following the, responding to the gradient at the on edge in this picture it should turn left and at the off edge it should turn right because on the right is where the odor is no? but if it's responding to the direction of motion it should turn left on both sides because the thing is moving from left to right so what you can do is now basically project bars that are moving over the flies and then you track also the fly, so you know the fly orientation relative to those bars. So then you can make a plot like the one on the right, where you have, um, if the fly is oriented perpendicular to the bar, basically there's no response because the two antenna receive the same thing at the same time. But if the fly is oriented uh, heading parallel to the to the bar, then it should have maximum response. But the response should be have a different sign for the on and off edge if the flies are sensing gradient, but it should be the same if they're sensing the direction of motion, okay? And so if you go to the next slide, you can see the result of the experiment is very clearly showing that in both cases, the on or edge and the off edge, the flies are responding in a very similar way. Any question about this? Um, I, I think so far it's good. Okay, so, okay. Um, so let me continue. So could it could both not be also possible? Like that's a very interesting. That's a very good point. So of course we know that the flies also respond to gradient. Like if there's a smooth gradient, uh, the flies will will turn towards the the side that has higher intensity. So. It has to do probably with uh, the temporal dynamics of the the signal. And this is something we're examining right now. So the question we're asking now is like, how does the fly decide whether it should follow the gradient or the motion? And it probably depends on the statistics of the environment, no? and the amount of fluctuation and so on and so on. So here, this experiment was done with bar that were like very sharp edges. No? And so that uh, seems to have promoted basically their response to the motion. So now the next question is, what, how can they tell this direction of motion? So what kind of computation, so that's on slide 21, I have that question. Now, what is the computational algorithm of auto motion sensing? And so, 
an obvious thing to do there is to say, well, is there any relationship between odor motion detection and visual motion detection? And motion detection in vision has been studied a lot. There's hundreds and hundreds of paper about that. No? And so now I invite you to go to the next slide where the title is, what is motion? And there's a movie too. So if you load that movie too, uh, and play it, so when you play it, stare the center of that um, flickering bars and tell me if they're moving right, towards the right or towards the left. I don't know. <laughs> For me, they're moving both ways, but probably... so they're flickering. But if you fixate on the on the center, so you should get the impression that they're moving to the right. But actually, it's an illusion. So if you go to the next slide, number twenty-three, I show you how we generated this signal. So this signal basically consists of so the, on the plot on the right, you have uh, in the horizontal direction, the position and in the vertical direction, time, no? So if you take the first line there, you have a white, red, white, white, red, red, etc. no? So that would be what you see at a given time point. And so then for the next time point, what is projected is constructed in the following way. So if there was a red, square then there is a higher probability that in the next frame on the right of it there will be a right a red square and if there was a white square then there's a higher probability that on the right of it at the next frame there's there's going to be uh, a white square and so you see that there's this kind of slanted directionality to the plot on the right which plot the position of the bar as a function of time no it's kind of random, but there is some correlation. And so that signal doesn't have really net motion. What it has is just correlation. And our visual system detect that as motion because our visual system uses correlation to uh, detect if things are moving to the right or to the left. And so if the, the flies use a similar type of algorithm as the visual system, to detect motion, we should be able to project this signal that doesn't really have net motion, net direction no? uh, of motion, just correlation on the on the flies that are walking around, and they should respond as if it was bars moving from the left to the right. So if you go to the slide 24, you can see that only pay attention first to the blue. I mean, I would have liked to animate all of those slides, but you know, somehow it was impossible. So only pay attention to the blue curve. So in the blue case, we are basically having the bars have correlation towards the right. So the, the, the fictive motion is from left to right. And we also have wind in that experiment. And you see that the flies respond strongly with this blue, the blue data there uh, showing that the flies are basically responding to the motion as, as before. No? 
But now we can do a new experiment that is impossible in with real odor, where we put the apparent motion of the bars in the opposite direction of the wind. So the correlation now going from right to left rather than left to right. And so if the flies were still responding the same way, it would mean they don't care about those correlations. But you can see that clearly now the flies are very confused because the wind is going from left to right, but the correlations or the 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 virtual motion, the the illusion is going from right to left. And so you see that the response of the fly is kind of like uh, reduced, okay? But we can go a step further. So there's another type of experiment you can do with humans and with flies in the visual system. And that's the next slide, the slide 25, uh, where that has a black background. So there's two movies there the movie three and the movie four. In this case, we put the correlation still from left to right, but now we inverted the polarity. So whenever there's a dark square at a given time point, the next time step, this, this dark square, there's gonna be a bright square on the right of it, okay? Or a higher probability to have. So the correlation is still from left to right, but the sign is changed, the phase is changed. And we, the human, detect that as reversing the direction. And you can test that on yourself. So if you look at the movie three, if you open both movies next to each other, the movie three and the movie four, you should see that the three is going from left to right and the movie four is going from right to left. But there's no real motion that is just this, this correlation. Can you, can you see that? Yep. Yeah, I can see that. Thank you. Yeah, I think everyone also. <laughs> and so this is a this is a very strong effect and it's an illusion that's revealing how our visual system is actually computing motion. So if the fly olfactory system follows a similar principle to detect motion, in that case also just inverting the phase but keeping the the direction of the correlation the same should also invert the, behavior, the the response of the fly. If you go to slide 26, you see that it's exactly what happened. So the two experiments on the left are exactly the same, but now basically the phase of the correlation is reversed, okay? And you see that the two colors in the response and the experimental data are reversed. So basically, this really demonstrates that those flies are responding to these uh, visual motion illusion, but with the olfactory system. Okay. Any question? No, no, it's it's really interesting that it works that way. Do do you think it has to do with the? Maybe I should ask later. But do you think it has to do with that? when you showed with the vortices that um you know the odor just expands so it would be too unspecific of a signal um, yes we, i'm gonna get there so so the next question this is, this is a good segue to my next question so slide 27 the question then is now okay we, so we know now the flies 
can detect the motion of the odor and they can do that even if the you know independently from detecting wind and they tend to respond by going against the motion and so the question then is how is this odor motion detection useful for navigation no? and to answer that question we first have to go back to so slide 28 is basically the same as the slide i was showing before that shows that when you have odor release in a turbulent stream of air imagine that the turbulence is totally homogeneous so there's a mean wind and turbulence added to it no? that can be totally generated for example in an experiment so the mean wind direction is really from left to right but the spreading of the odor is also from left to right, but also in addition to that, also away from the center line. No? And so if you detect the motion, you get information, a directional information that is additional to the one provided by the wind. And the hypothesis is that the odor motion indicates in which direction to go to find the center of the plume. And this is really important because remember all the, the 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 previous studies that I was talking about, including ours, concluded that basically animals, in order to navigate these odors, what they have to do is that they, whenever they detect odor, they go upwind, and when they lose the odor, they go crosswind to find the odor again. But here we're seeing that maybe they can do something better because there's not just the upwind direction they can detect, they can also detect the odor motion that indicates in which direction, in which crosswind direction to go to get towards the center of the plume, which the other strategy doesn't tell you anything about. So to test this hypothesis, we did the next experiment, that's slide 29. So there we basically, put the fly in an environment where there's wind coming from the left, laminar wind, totally regular. And then we had bars, moving bars like before, but those bars were on the left, the bars were coming from the center line and moving outward. Where like on the right of this slide, this was a second experiment where the, the bars were actually moving towards the center line. So in a completely, uh, unnatural way, if you want. So on the left, the bar motion mimics, if you want, the the natural spreading, dispersion of the odor away from the center line. But like on the right, it goes towards it, which is basically contrary to the, what happened normally in nature. And then on the bottom part of that slide, you see trajectories of flies navigating these two signals. And then the red box was what we considered our target. And you see that on the right, when the bars are moving in this unnatural way towards the center, the flies have a hard time getting to the red box. And you can see that while they are in the in the back of the arena, they're kind of moving in the same way in both experiments, but when they reach that triangular tapering uh, tip of the, the plume, no, they get lost on the right. Where like on the left, they're able to follow it towards the, to, to the box. 
And if you look on the bottom right of the slide, I plotted the, the distribution of the position of the fly in the, bot, in the right half of the arena and the, right, and the left half of the arena. And see that in the left half, uh, for the purple, which is the nat where in the case in which the, the bars are moving in a natural way, there's a much more, uh, the, 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 the flies are, are concentrated much more closer to the center line. And the success rate is plotted above. You see there's a significant difference. So that really suggested that actually this auto motion is useful even in navigation. So then to really convince ourselves, we did the next experiment, uh, which is actually, I, I thought is, 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 is uh, beautiful in some way because what we did there, so this is slide number 30, uh, we took one of those smoke plume that we had imaged with our camera and we projected that pattern so you can look if you download the movie number five and you play it, you can see that other plume. So it's, it's good on a grayscale. No? You see the things coming from the left and basically moving towards the right. No? But on the right side, we play the same plume, but reverse in time. So we play the movie backwards. It's exactly the same movie. We do an experiment where we play the movie in the normal way, and we do another experiment where we play the movie backwards in time. If you play backwards in time, what you're reversing is all the correlation. So the motion is reversed. But the gradients, the concentration, so on at a given position, on average, they're exactly the same. It's the same movie. It's the same frames. And so that should enable you to test whether you know, the other motion really affects navigation. And so if you go to, I don't know if you had a chance to check out the movies, but you should be able to. So if we go to slide number 31, this is the result. You see that on the left, where we're playing the movie in the normal way, the insects are moving to the to the box in greater quantity than when we play the movie uh, in reverse time. So in these two plots, the gray lines are the fly's trajectory that didn't make it to the to the target, and the white lines are the trajectory that did arrive at the target. And then below you have again the success rate. You see that the is much higher for the fly is responding to the movie played in a normal way than when we play the movie in, in reverse. And the only thing really that changed is that we're playing back in time. So. And so that really shows that the flies are actually using this information from other motion because that's what's really reverse when we do, which, where we play the thing backwards in order to navigate. And that's basically the, the, how, how we finish the paper. We also run simulation with robot, you know, simulated robots and stuff like that. But basically this is like the, the, the main result. So that brings me to my take home message, uh, slide 32. So 
what we discover is that the olfactory system can detect the motion of auto packets. And that's a sense that, you know, uh, nobody knew about, uh, even though we've been studying flies behavior for a very long time. Although motion detection seems to be obeying a correlation based type of algorithm, which seems to be very similar or equivalent to uh, visual motion uh, detection algorithm that we know exist in, in humans, in the flies, etc. And uh, we also demonstrated that basically auto motion seems to provide a directional cue that is complementary to that of the wind because it points towards the center line of the plume. And so that helps the, the animal that's navigating stay near the center of the plume and not lose the plume. You know? It should enhance basically uh, performance in navigation. And uh, flies really exploit this auto motion during olfactory navigation. So now I'd like to thank uh, the people who did the work. Really, this was totally spearheaded by Mirag. And uh, Mahmoud is the person who designed the, the, the experiment with the smoke and so on. And then uh, Mirag, when he came to the lab, he basically added the projector and then used the same setup. And the reason Mirag added the projector is because our neighbor, is Damon Clark, and Damon had developed this projector system to study uh, the walking behavior of flies. And uh, he has been a long time collaborator of us, uh, studying also olfaction with us uh, in, in previous paper, including the one with Mahmoud Demir. And so this was really possible, I think, because uh, the two labs are next to each other in a very interdisciplinary environment. Uh, in a place called the Quantitative Biology Institute. And um, the people from Damon's lab who study motion are sitting next to the people in my lab who study olfaction. And so together they put two, two, two plus two equal four, and that's how they got to, to discover this. So thank you for, for your attention and uh, I'm happy to take questions and Thank you so much for this wonderful presentation. That is so interesting. And also that you shared this collaboration uh, environment um, that made this possible. That's really inspiring, I think. And um, yeah, I wish, you know, everywhere it was like that. So, <laughs> so it's really interesting how this motion is really important. And um, you said that was probably very helpful that you um, studied physics before that. So, so when you sim uh, simulate this with robots, or do you assume that mammals like have a similar way of uh, perceiving odor, or is it specially important for flying, um, you know, animals? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this is this. So, so one of the speculation we make at the end of the paper is that basically we expect that many animals will actually detect auto motion because the only thing really you need to to have to do that is that you need to have two spatially separated sensors and then do a comparison in the in the 
in the correlation of the signal between the two sides. And um, so there's really no reason why uh, humans and dogs and uh, and moths and you know even fish and so on uh, would not would not exploit that that uh, possibility to detect the motion of of those signals. And in terms of the robot, what we did is that we so we simulated robot that um, so there's another part in the in the paper where we show also how do the animals combine air motion you know it's known that the the flies turn upwind no they they respond to the direction of the wind also so we wonder how do they respond to the direction of the wind and the motion of the other the odor and so the first thing that we looked at is if they were basically just summing up together those two directions. And we found that actually that's what they do. So to a zero order, what seems to be happening is that the flies turn against the direction that would be the sum of the direction of the wind and the direction of the odor. Okay. And um, so when we tested our so when we simulated robots, we first took robots that basically performed the older algorithm, which is uh, they would uh, turn upwind when they detect odor and crosswind when they don't. And then we added to the algorithm the fact that they would turn against up, not against upwind, but against the sum of the direction of the wind and that of the other motion. And in, in all cases, we found that the robots are doing better. So that's interesting. Is it known maybe in people or animals that have kind of a deficiency in odor sensing that their navigation in general is a little bit off or or I don't know. Up? That that that's an interesting question. Uh I, I'm I don't know, but maybe somebody in the audience knows. I don't know. But yes, the so I know that there's a, there's a, there's some paper about human detecting um, if an odor arises first on the right or on the left and things like that. So there's some papers that have been published about that. There's also some paper where uh, people have studied how shark respond to whether the signal appears first on the right nostril or the left nostril, and uh, Again, they, they find a, a response to, to, to the timing of the odor, you know, if it's come first on the right or on the left. And so I expect that, you know, there's, there's going to be now a lot of studies that look specifically at, you know, signal like the ones we've been using. You know? If you can make a signal that has just correlations, do the animal respond to those correlations? I mean, we were all stuck at home during COVID, but that would have been a great time to test it. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, yeah, the other thing is, what's while we're eating, where like an animal is eating, it's also sensing smell and stuff. If you mm -hmm. would additionally add another odor that, you know, comes with the motion would that be kind of off or can we can we add layers of 
of information in order or can we just um, focus on, on one basically? Yeah, so the olfactory system is able to detect new odor on top of odors that are already in the background. And so we have that ability that, you know, you, you, you smelling something in the environment, like in a room, imagine that you're in a room where somebody smoked before and you smell it, no? But then there's somebody that passed by with some perfume and you're going to detect the perfume. So you can detect on top of all the odors and differentiate one from the other. There's also a lot of experiments. There's some experiments showing that uh, animals can detect if molecules came from the same source of odor or not. So if there's a source of odor that releases, like, let's say, five compounds, odorant compounds, then these are transported by the air in a correlated manner, in a synchronous kind of correlated manner. And so the temporal structure of the arrival of those different components of the odor really matters for the animal to decide, oh, that's an, an odor object, if you want. There's a source there that contains that odor. Yeah, yeah thank you. I'll ask one more question and then I'll hand it over to Dr. Shah. So let's say we want to build a robot that's humanoid type of warp dog type or whatever Boston Dynamics. Mm -hmm. And um, we are not good at making artificial odor sensing. So, but let's say we would be good at it and we would have this different inputs and stuff. But either current neural networks like the artificial ones would they be able to do that to to sense all these different orders um you know with the yeah, navigation so, yeah yeah so so people are developing robot that or there's already robot out there that can detect odorant and navigate odorant um uh, one of the big difficulty was uh having a good uh detector for odors so one way to detect odor is to suck air into what is called a photoionization detector. So you pass the air between two plates and you ionize the, ga the gas, and then that gives you a voltage difference. And then that you can build the system such that the voltage difference is linear with the concentration of molecules of odor. But uh, these instruments tend to be kind of bulky and they suck air and so on and so on. But so there's been like development of miniaturized uh, electronic component now that can actually detect odors. And so uh, there are robots that are being built where, you know, you have, but so far, I think all the robots that, that have been built, they basically detect the time dependency of the odor, maybe the cost, the gradient of the odor. So they have two detector and they can tell if it's, more intense on the right than the left, but no one really has used yet the fact that one could also compute the motion. And so this is something that's, you know, right to be done right now. Like if you have a company building robots that smell odor, what you should definitely do is add a motion sense, odor motion sensing to the algorithm that the, that the, that the robot is using. And then 
um, the strategy that's being used by the robot to navigate, given that the robot is getting the information about the concentration, the gradient, and maybe now in the future, the motion, uh, that uh, is still like a very much open, uh, you know, sub a subject of open research, uh, current research. Like actually our lab is, is studying what are the type of optimal strategy that an animal should use to to use that information to reach the goal the fastest, you know? And so that's also a very interesting thing. And, and there, machine learning and so on is being used to, to study that question. Yeah, that's interesting. Thank you. Because I think adding all these senses is really interesting for us someday having an AGI. I, I don't think you can really achieve that without adding more. I know like the open AI chat function is getting really good, but that's just one type of information yeah. input. So I don't think that's enough. But Dr. Shah, I'm sorry that I asked so many questions. Go ahead. Thanks. No, thank you so much. Uh, so that was a very wonderful research. And my question is in continuation of the Katerina question about the AI because the practical level of use of your research for example it can be for the detection of the poisonous gas i don't know that if uh, yeah. if you ever thought about it also you just uh, talked about the photon and impact of the light and i was just wondering yeah, did you have did you ever think about the artificial light and having this impact in during the night time um you mean I didn't understand the question about the light. So you yeah, you talk about the photon, mean... and I was just wondering if we want to consider, for example, the I mean, this kind of phenomenon that is happening uh, during the, for example, day or night, and by considering the artificial light, uh, do you think that, for example, with producing the chips or those kind of things by, uh, you know, so. So those kind in, of in, because you talk about yeah. robot and all of those things and yeah, my yeah. idea is about the chip and I was just wondering maybe you going through deeply mm -hmm. about this. So so like in the ex so so first in, in the experiment we use light, but that's because we're using optogenetics now. But um uh we have also experiment with real odor where we so that you cannot see, you know but we know where the other is and we can show that the animal is responding to the motion of those others. And so uh, in terms of navigating others, uh, it will make no difference if it's during the day or the night in the sense that motion detection will basically just involve detecting uh, the odor in that case. And um, I don't know if that answered your question. Okay, and about the poisonous, I mean, gas oh, detection. So, yeah, so that's definitely something that, uh, so so those robots that are being built that can follow, um, you know, odorant, they're built to detect bombs and, uh, you know, artifacts like that. They're built to navigate in environment where humans cannot go because they're too dangerous, etc. And, um, 
those robots that exist are already have some olfactory um, capabilities, but they don't have the capability to detect the auto motion. So that is clearly a place where, you know, one could, you know, improve the performance of those robots quite a lot, I think. So yeah. think about the fly and other is one side and another side, for example, it can be different in sex and we can think about some hormones like a pheromone. And when we want to just compare them to, to each other, maybe it's not comparable in some ways, but still it can uh, provide some spatial data and they can use it for the AI. That's why I ask you about the differences between the day and light and how it can work for the colonies. For example, when you're talking about the fly, they are not living in a colony, but some other insects, they are living in the colonies. And I was just wondering because this is I see. your research. So, so, so you mean if the, if, if like, for example, animals are, are moving as a group, yeah, it can colony. be, that's for example, bees. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. Just yeah, insects yeah. like bees. This, not... Yes, that's very interesting. So, um, I, I, have no, I haven't thought about what would happen to other motion if, you know, you have a close by other animal that is also flapping its wings, for example. And, uh, but, in general, what I think is, so in the case of the bees, for example, no, the bee, the individual bee goes and explore no, and try to find like um, some sugar somewhere and then find some flowers that are, you know, the one that it likes. So then it goes back to the, to, to the hive to basically tell the other bees to go in that direction. And, um, in the navigation of the bees towards the source. So then a whole bunch of bees will, will try to fly towards that source, no? And then at some point uh, during that navigation, they are gonna use the olfactory system and the, to detect the odor that are being released by the source, by the flower and so on. And so in this case, they are gonna be able to use uh, odor motion, definitely. Another, Thing that is interesting is that um, maybe the you can also use auto motion if you know your own speed and there is a the odor landscape is kind of static but you're moving in that landscape then you get a an auto motion that is due to your own motion within the landscape no and so that's another thing we kind of currently studying so the other motion really is relative to your own frame of reference. And so it could, if, if, the, if the animal is moving very fast or moving slow, its perception of the motion is different. The same with its perception of the wind. And so in that sense, being a, in a colony maybe also will, will, will change things. But I haven't thought deeper about that so far. Yeah, it can be a speed and uh, in the same time you mentioned about the signaling process and the protein because I'm assuming you mm -hmm. don't have any information right now about the genomic data or such things. But 
I mean that about this specific research by itself, uh, because you didn't mention uh, during the slides, but I was just wondering about the effect of the temperature because they have a thermoregulatory process, especially mm -hmm. is come along with detection of the pheromone or it can be other even. So that was just out of curiosity to ask you because you know better about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, temperature definitely should, should affect uh, the olfactory, basically sensitivity to odor. And uh, if the sensitivity to the odor signal is reduced, then the ability to detect the motion of the odor is also also changed. You know? So we do expect that there would be like a, a change due to, to, to the temperature. And uh, what was the other part of the question? Um, yeah, exactly. It was a thermoregulatory oh, about the, inside the insect. Yeah, it was also about the, the mechanism. No? So we're currently trying to find what is the circuit in the brain that actually compute this uh, odor motion. So that's one thing. And the other thing that, um, yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's what we're trying to do. So we want to first identify what is the neural circuitry inside the brain that is used to detect odor motion and then compare that to the one that is known to, in the fly brain to use to detect visual motion and see if there are similarities, differences and so on. Because it's kind of interesting that maybe the two motion detector have evolved, you know, twice. Like one for olfaction and one for, for vision. So we're going to be able to compare the two. Yeah, that's interesting. Also the, the speed, right? If there's a difference. Mm -hmm. Because the visual system is pretty fast. Um, transmission, you know, although it's a pretty long path, like especially in mammals and so on. Uh, the audio one is even faster, but it just has less connections. That's why it's faster. But the the speed of the the signal transduction itself, I don't think, is faster. So in, in less, yeah. so in the in the fly, the actual the the fly olfactory system is also very shallow. So there's just a few synapses between the periphery, the sensory. You see the receptors and 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 the brain, no, the the cortex, and so, um, and and one thing that is in the paper, so what we can do is calculate. So how does how does the, you know, how do you detect motion from having two sensors that are separated spatially? No, so there is a a general, a general model for that is that imagine there's a left sensor and a right sensor, no? and that a, an object is going from left to right. If the signal downstream of the left sensor is delayed, but the signal downstream of the right sensor is not delayed, then if the mo mo object is coming from left to right, it will hit the left sensor, but that signal is delayed. 
then it hits the right sensor, but that one is not delayed. And so if those two signals then coincide and are kind of multiplied or nonlinear interact, you're gonna get some positive signal that would say, oh, something is moving from left to right. But the same exact two neurons, if an object was had been moving from right to left, it would hit the right sensor first, but downstream of the right sensor, there's no delay. And so the signal will go down and then later on it hit the left sensor and now there's a delay. So they will not coincide downstream. And so you will not get a signal. And so this architecture is called the Raycart-Heisenstadt-Raycart correlator. And it's basically the basic principle of how motion is detected in the visual system. And what is critical there is that delay. And so we did an experiment where we actually measured that delay for the olfactory system, assuming that the olfactory system would be working under a similar principle of uh, having two inputs, but one is delayed and the other one is not. And we found that the the delay that comes out of the data is on the order of 20 milliseconds, which is exactly in the same ballpark as the one that's being measured in the visual system. So that's interesting. The similar yeah. time scale. Oh, that's interesting. And then is there also um, a lot of feedback in the ambition? Because the visual system has a lot because I think it's to keep the information quite granular. Um, would be interesting also to compare, like how, mm -hmm. uh, like you know how how detailed the information will get passed on. Because I think by just looking at how many different GABA receptors and autoreceptors um, are there, maybe just screening that would give you already a a kind of a hint. So we kind of investigating, um, so we can, with the fly, the cool thing about it is that we can study the response of the fly if all of the olfactory receptor neurons are activated or just one type is activated. And so we're doing that, exactly that currently to, to kind of try to answer the, the question you're asking. Yeah, so that's, that's, so it's kind of different than it's kind of different uh, than the ganglia because we are just considering one ganglia for insects and we should not think about uh, apparent or efferent technique based on whatever you are saying. This is just one direction, and for example, uh, we have to exit arrow for the olfactory based on whatever you are explaining. But as a fact, that's a one ganglia, right? In insects normally working. So in the olfactory system, basically you have every olfactory receptor neuron only express one type of receptor, but then all the neurons that express the same receptor, they project to the same uh, region of the brain called glomeruli. And there they make synaptic connection with the second order neuron called projection neuron that then project uh, to downstream to the brain. No? And uh, already at that level of the 
antennal lobe where you have those glomeruli, you have local neurons that basically will inhibit. So if, if one of those projection neurons is activated, the other one tend to be inhibited. And so uh, at, at that level already, you, you basically have um, signal that come from multiple channels at the same time. And so the, the, the difference with the, the vision is that in olfaction, uh, there is very large number of receptors. No? There's like families of genes that actually is some of the largest gene family in the, in the fly uh, genome that code for different type of receptors. And so you, you can think about the olfactory system as like having, let's say, 50 different channels. And one other molecule arrives and it will interact with channel one, three, and seven, for example. No? And so you can think about this one, three, seven as the combinatorial code that identified that odor. And then another odor on the rise and it might interact with channel one, 23, and you know, 50. And so you have this, this additional problem that the olfactory system has is to basically detect the identity of the odor molecule in addition to detect temporal change in the concentration of all of those molecules. And you have you know an enormous space of possible molecule that those systems have to be able to to detect and make decision about in a very very quick manner as and as well as the memory if it, it want to keep the and memory, memory that or yeah, not. yeah okay and so 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 a big a, 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 you know a, a very interesting question in olfaction is how can the signal, two things about the signal have to be encoded simultaneously and very quickly. The identity of the signal is not just red, blue, and so on, but it could be like, you know, out of a thousand or out of 10,000 and the concentration, which will give you correlation, the detection of gradient motion, etc. And so in, in our lab in the past, we've published a, a bunch of paper showing that one thing that's really interesting is that the olfactory receptor neuron can encode the timing of arrival of the odor super precisely and independently from the concentration of the odor. So if you calculate the cross correlation between this odor signal and the olfactory receptor neuron responses, you find that that cross correlation is actually independent, at least over a certain range over of the concentration of the odor, which is kind of a amazing thing. But it makes sense because if you're flying around, you, you know, you want to detect those packets of odor, you want to know when they arrive, irrespective of the concentration. And to detect the motion, you want to extract information about the motion irrespective of the concentration of those packets. And so timing has to be detected very precisely. 
Yeah, and then you want to, you know, look back and, and find it again, probably. So that's also at the same time. Like, yeah. you want to find the, the source of good food. So imitating them would make really good cooking robots. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> probably yeah. better than human cooks. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> So, I mean, I don't want to, you know, take too much of your time, but um, it's like 6.30 almost. So. Yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> I've talked a lot. Yes, I, I wanted to check in with you. Um, we have Jake and Dennis. Do you have two more uh, questions available? Sure. It's fine if you say no. It's totally Yeah, fine. yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, Jake and Dennis, thank you for waiting. Hi, thanks. Yeah, uh, I was thinking about uh, mosquitoes and the most effective mosquito traps use carbon dioxide, like a carbon dioxide source uh, to trap mosquitoes. And so I'm wondering if, if you ever thought about using your techniques to figure out a way of using vis visual uh, cues uh, to attract a mosquito and making a better, uh, uh, more accessible mosquito traps. Yeah, I think that, um, so one thing with respect to that is that um, when animals like mosquito try to reach their target, they use different modalities depending on the distance. So when they're really far away from the, the target, they really just use olfaction to, to, to track the target, no? to get to the target. When they get really close, then they engage the visual system. And there's an experiment by Michael Dickinson, for example, at Caltech, has shown that not with mosquitoes, but with flies, that this is the case. So as they approach closer to the source, then they get very sensitive to contrast and shape of objects and bright lights and so on. And so definitely, I think that that's something that might already exist or, or could could be engineered, I think. Very cool, thanks. Denise, did you have a question? Hi, Juan. Hi, everybody. Yeah, just curious. Um, is there, was there anything that you wanted to, to necessarily room in the paper it's sort of adjacent but not necessarily in scope for this particular thing any that didn't really quite make it in here but you think would be interesting for folks oh <laughs> uh i mean yes i mean there are like some um let me think. I, I, the the thing that didn't make it in the paper, and so, but also, you know, we when we when we were writing the paper, we really focused on the thing that would go in, and so we we kind of have preliminary result, and we're gonna pursue them, but um, you know, we would to put them in the paper, we'd have to do more work. So that's why I also didn't make it in the paper. 
but uh, that are related to, for example, the strategies to use to navigate to the source, which we're investigating now using machine learning and so on and so on. And uh, another aspect was um, what is the neural circuitry that um, um, the, the factory system is using to, to compute um, motion. And then also we did, we have more data about under what condition, what are the failure mode of odor motion? So, you know, there's a range of odor speed and wind speed over which that works and beyond which then, um, it, you know, it, it becomes impossible to detect because the, the delay between the two antenna is too short or too long. And in general, um, we were also very interested in understanding how the statistics of the odor plume, which are different in different, if you have a source at a certain position, as a function of distance from that source, the statistics of the turbulent odor plume will change. No? And so we're interested in how basically the animal will adapt its navigation as it's going to the source. But I mean, this like is really just going beyond that paper at this point. Fascinating. Yes, thank you. As someone who has studied uh, aerosol science, that was a really interesting. Um, so oh, thank, thank you, you so much. Um, anyone else have questions? Uh, yeah, I, I know that Kyle and, and Philip joined. Just be really quick because we'll, we wanted to stop like in a minute. So thank you. Yeah, I'll be uh, incredibly quick. Um, thank you. Uh, was there, from what I was able to listen to, it was amazing. Um, I'm curious, um, have you worked with anybody on mindfulness? Um, because listening to you, it, it sounds like you could be a, a, variable, uh, a very valuable person for them to help um, with sensing older. And I, I know, and navigation as well, and I, um, I understand this is a little bit outside of the scope of your work, but um, I intuitively feel like if you were to approach somebody that's working on mindfulness, mindfulness that your uh, work on um, odors and navigation um, might actually uh, contribute. Oh, that's, that's interesting. So, uh, uh... A few years ago, when I was was not yet studying the motion of the odor, but basically just olfaction, um, I got interested in the fact that it seems that odor therapy is kind of used for, um, for example, treat uh, some some aspects of autism. And um, basically, odors, you know, so the olfactory system is basically one of the really most ancient sensory system that, that animals have, no? And it's also very shallow in terms of like, 
this very short distance between the sensor and the brain. And so a lot of you probably have had this experience of like you smell something and then you remember things in your childhood and so on and so on. And so in that sense, um, I've thought about, uh, you know, it's related to mindfulness in some sense, but I definitely think that olfaction is a sense that affects our moods, our um, sense of perception of well-being and so on in ways that are not fully understood. And um, it's not a, it's on, on the dark side, it's not like a random, the fact that advertisers have realized that you can attract people into a shop by releasing odors that are attractive. And so, you know, you have this kind of fake odors of bread and stuff like that, that people use to bring people in, <laughs> in a bakery, et cetera. No? So it's a very interesting uh, question, but I don't know much about it, but it's interesting. Thank you for the question. Yeah, yeah that was amazing because you even brought up um, the scent and episodic memory. Um, there, mm -hmm. like it, it seems like people uh, come and uh, encounter a scent, and then all of a sudden be presented with a memory, an episodic memory from their childhood or something. So, um, amazing yeah. presentation! Thank you so much. Thank you, Philip. You the you have the last quick question. <laughs> thank thank you. you, thank you, thank you, host, um, and thank you, um, Terry. Terry, I hope I didn't butcher your name. Um, I am a beekeeper, um, Apris, um, and basically what you were speaking of was very relevant to what I am observing through my several years of practical beekeeping. Um, I am trying to develop, I see, from my observation, I'm a Sankofa scientist, meaning I, it's an African ethos of retrieve, repair, and restore. So it's a self-exploration tool um, or a self-navigation tool because you're talking about the said mm -hmm. thing. Um, so um, what I wanted to say, I don't want to speak too far, but I do want to develop, um, I am interested in, for my observation, I have seen a correlation that needs to be um, developed in relation with the older therapy. So I'm proposing, and maybe some of the others in this group have heard of it already, um, apotherapy, um, which in particular is the purified or the microclimate air within a healthy beehive, and to use that as an aid to increase um, the, 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 what we say, the good brain-gut bacteria so that um, um, respective recipients can develop a greater ability or recovery or regenerative, you know, um, quality of life, whether it be short or long. Um, so thank you. So I don't want to speak too long, but um, I did um, request um, you guys to follow and hopefully I can have another conversation with you guys and others who are interested. I noticed Jake showing a beehive respect, more love. Mm. Thank you. That that's that's really interesting, um, especially because you know, in in my lab we also work on bacteria, and um, a lot of the odors uh, that people have and so on are actually generated by the bacteria. 
So, so the, the smell of your skin is really the smell of the bacteria on your skin. Very true, and, um, very true. And so, um, also I imagine in a beehive, uh, you know, a lot of the, the smell of the beehive has to do with also the microbiome yes. of the flies and uh, so, so on. So yeah, it makes sense. Yes, and, and the plants that they interact with. Yeah. The, the microbiota of those plants and etc which obviously links back to the memory um, well, obviously not the long-term memory like they store but a memory that they are able to retrieve um, more accessible um, based upon the, the the microbiotic environment that they are connected mm -hmm. to thank you very much I, I as i said i hope to follow this on have a conversation if to, about that development of the older therapy and seeing how it can aid people with learning difficulties, um, depression, obviously mental health, obviously since the lockdown and COVID, long COVID, I believe that it could aid in long COVID. Um, there's other evidences of um, um, it can help reverse, or oh, there's loads of things. But anyway, thank you very much. I won't stop speaking for now. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much, um, uh, Philip. Uh, that was really interesting. And um, yeah, so thank you so much, Thierry. This was such a wonderful talk and then discussion also. So we really appreciate you coming here and taking the time to talk with us. And um, I learned a lot. So and um, I think everyone appreciates it very much. Um, and yeah, maybe one day you come back and give us updates maybe next year around this time. <laughs> that would be wonderful to continue learning what you learn in the lab. So uh, thank sure. you. Thank you. Thank you very much for, for, for having me. It really was like, um, you know, I don't get a lot of chance to talk to such a wide open audience. And the only frustration, I would love to see you in person instead of just talking like this, but, uh, also, I realized that in this way, you can talk to people all over the places, not so. And uh, if you have any question, don't hesitate. You can email me, you know, and I'll try to answer. Okay. Yeah. Thank mm. you for saying that. Yeah. If you need the contact, if you can, it's that the the I put the web uh, site of your lab in the chat, so mm -hmm. for sure there for everyone. And um, I agree, we would love to meet also in person, but yeah, that way we can reach people around the yeah. world. And uh, maybe one day we'll have a place to meet where people can come. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Maybe, if I become a millionaire one day. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> okay. Um, okay, thank you everyone. Uh, enjoy the rest of your day. If you like discussions like this, uh, you probably already heard this. Just follow the club, and we'll have tomorrow a talk about the Hipparchus Star Catalog, um, how it was revealed, uh, which will be really interesting. And then on Friday, we'll have actually a microbiota uh, talk um, and how it promotes social behavior and through microglia interaction, which is really interesting. Uh, I haven't seen that before and I'm really looking forward to it. So um, I hope I hear you all back again. And Thierry, thank you so much for um, gifting us your time and knowledge. Thank you for the invitation. Okay. Thanks to everyone for listening.
<laughs> yeah, and thanks for the great questions, everyone. Thank you. Okay, I'll close the room in three, two, one. Bye, everyone. Thank you. Bye-bye.